This week, we are beginning a new series um, focusing on what is commonly called as the, the uh, second book of John's gospel. If you cast your minds back uh, to earlier in the year, we had covered a little bit of John chapter 1 all the way t- through chapter 12. And John chapter 13 to 20 is commonly seen as a, uh, a kind of a different perspective. And why we see that is because there is a final rejection by the Jews who are the community of the old covenant of Jesus Christ in, in, in uh, John chapter 12. And that rejection signals the end of, John's, uh, of Jesus' public ministry. And so the remainder of John's gospel focuses on Jesus' private ministry to those he called his own, his closest followers, specifically the 12 disciples, soon to be 11 as we all know. And in these chapters, they're given a final sign of Jesus' love for them. As we know, John is a book of signs and, and Jesus communicates a lot about himself and his mission through signs. So they're given a final sign of Jesus' love for them, which is the foot washing incident we read They are told to love one another in unity. If you go home and read John chapter 13 and John chapter 17, you will see that Jesus' imperative command to his disciples that they love one another and that they be united so that they may bear the mark of Jesus' disciples and demonstrate the reality of the gospel that God sent his son to love those who believe in him. So instead of signs that demonstrate to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, which has been the focus of John's gospel till chapter 12, here Jesus focuses on preparing his people for his death, his burial, his resurrection, and then their mission to spread the gospel to the whole world. If you, if you read John chapter 20, verse 21 and 22, you know, there's a version of the great commission in John's gospel where Jesus says peace be with you as the father has sent me even so I'm sending you and when he had said this he breathed on them and said to them receive the Holy Spirit so the need for love among the disciples and unity among the disciples is directly related to the fact that Jesus is going to send them on a mission to preach and spread the gospel So when we look at John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17, I'm sure all of us are familiar with this passage of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And there's a command here that you should wash one another's feet. So we often ask, then why don't we wash each other's feet? Why don't we do it as one of the... um, ordinances, for example, we have baptism, we have the Lord's Supper, then why don't we wash each other's feet? As some church traditions do, in some church traditions, the leaders of the church wash um, you know, the, the feet of the people of the church. Why is it not a custom that we follow? And the reason I address it so early is because I want to really focus on what the passage is talking about when we go into it. See, nowhere else in the Old Testament, uh, in the New Testament, or in early church history is it commanded or is it seen. And the reason for that is that there's a specific cultural and geographical reason for the foot washing. 
which is that in those times, you know, there were no paved roads and things like that in the regions of Judea and Galilee and so on, that people who went on a journey, by the time they reached the house of the, of the person who had invited them, their feet were dusty. And so the imperative to wash their feet was necessitated by the culture and the geography of the region. And when those imperatives do not exist anymore, that's why the early church no longer considered it as one of the mandates that Jesus Christ had done. Although they took the attitude behind that command to heart. And if you see First Timothy, one of the things that it talks about as a qualification for widows is that they are people um, who wash the feet of the saints. And there are two interpretations for that. One is that it is indeed literal foot washing. But more commonly, many people believe that by that time, washing each other's feet had become synonymous with a kind of loving hospitality to the, to the saints. So the recognition that Jesus was demonstrating in symbolic form, an example of his character, a pattern of thinking, that should translate into action in the disciples' life. That is the focus of John chapter 13. That is how the church has always read this chapter. They should emulate his example, not specifically in the foot washing, but rather the attitude that would lead him to wash the feet of the disciples and indeed would lead him to the cross to die for them. So also that attitude should lead to actions that mark out these people as Jesus' disciples, that mark out and adorn the gospel message that they are to carry. And already in John's gospel, there's a pattern of extravagant signs that convey reality in Jesus' life, in Jesus' ministry, but behind that ministry, behind that reality lies an attitude that should be emulated by his disciples and will lead to similar but not the same consequences in their lives. As an example, we can look at John chapter 12, verse 24 to 25. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now we know that in Jesus' life, it testifies to the reality that what happens? Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. And the fruit that he bears is the fruit of salvation in our lives. But that attitude would translate to the disciples' life not that they would die on the cross. Even if they did die on a cross, it wouldn't have the impact of bearing fruit in, of salvation in others' lives because that is Jesus Christ's unique ministry. But by counting their life in this world as nothing for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of spreading the gospel, they would then bear the fruit of seeing gospel transformation in the lives of other people, the making of other disciples. So when we read these signs, it's important to realize that what it signifies in Jesus' life may not be the same what it signifies in our life, but the attitude behind it is to be the same. And so we ask ourselves, what is the sign of the foot washing point two? And it is communicated to us right in the first verse of chapter 13. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, 
having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So you see, there's a marker of time that the hour had come, the time had come for Jesus to now die on the cross for our sins. And then it says, having loved his own who were in the world. What's the most famous verse in John's gospel? John chapter three, verse 16, right? It says, for God so loved the world. But the reality is that God loved the world in order to draw his own people out of the world. The object of God's love is the world. You know, many people confuse this. Many people confuse and say, oh, when God says God loved the world, it doesn't actually mean the world, it means a subset. That's not true. The object of God's love is the world. But the, the, the need for God's love is in order to draw those people out of the world into a category that here we see as called his own. They are people who live in the world, but they would be marked as different from the rest of the world. They would be called his own. And then it says, having, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John is very good at using terms and phrases that have a double meaning, which is why in some translations, you will see one meaning or the other. So here it says he loved them to the end in the sense of time, that he loved them to the end of his life, which is true. His magnificent love for his people led him to die on the cross for them, and he maintained that love till the very end of his life on this earth. This is true. But then it also means that he loved them to the uttermost. It's a sign of quality. In some English translations, they will actually translate it as he loved them to the uttermost or in the most extravagant manner possible. So the time has come for Jesus to do something out of his extravagant love and that is, we know is to die for his people on the cross. And that attitude would be needed to be emulated by the people he called his own. Therefore, he takes upon the opportunity of washing the disciples' feet to teach them something about that attitude and how they are to emulate it. So when you look at this passage, I want you to think about it in four points, okay? The first one, what it says about the character of Jesus, the Jesus who disciples or who cleanses his disciples' feet. Then the second point, what the sign signifies about Jesus cleansing then the uniqueness of Jesus cleansing. And lastly, the example of Jesus cleansing which should lead to a Christian attitude and action that follows that example. So again, the character of Jesus, and then there are three aspects of the sign itself. What it signifies about Jesus cleansing, what it shows about the uniqueness of Jesus cleansing, and then how it is an example that can be emulated by Christians. So let's start with looking at verses two to five of 13. It says, during supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, 
Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So we are looking at the character of Jesus, or more appropriately, the nature of the love of Jesus. Now John points out that Judas was going to betray Jesus Christ. And that does three things. One, it proves the point that the hour had come for Jesus to die on the cross. And things were set in motion under God's sovereignty that would lead to Jesus' death on the cross. It is to give us, the readers, advanced knowledge of the events that are to be set in place which the disciples themselves do not know. But lastly, very importantly, we should realize that Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him. Jesus knew that Judas was about to turn him in for 30 pieces of silver. And what does Jesus do with that information? He washes his feet. He washes the feet of Judas. You know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then verse 47, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. The perfection of the love of Jesus is exemplified in his washing of the feet of the very man who would betray him. Who is his enemy? That is his love for him because that love which ultimately manifests itself in his death on the cross, to pay for the sins of his own people, shows us that we were all enemies of God. And that if God had not loved us when we were enemies, then what is the point of us having any part of his death on the cross? So Jesus washes the feet of Judas. And then you look at the form of the service that Jesus uh, provides to the disciples. It's like I said, it's it's uh, foot washing, and it is necessitated by the fact that these disciples had come for this meal and they had been on a journey. But you have to realize, in those times, usually peers—that is, people who are of the same social status—did not wash each other's feet, and usually, someone who is lower in status washes the feet of the one who is superior. There's no instance in, in any Jewish or, or, or uh, Greek and Roman writings that we have of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. It's never seen. It's only seen in the Bible. So perhaps if Jesus asked disciples, asked the disciples to wash his feet, they might have agreed. However, he didn't ask, and you see, they did not offer. And the reason why they did not offer is that it was considered too lowly a task for Jewish, even for Jewish slaves. So typically, only Gentile slaves washed the feet of Jews. If you had a Jewish slave, they had a superior status to a Gentile slave. And, in, and even in the home, if you had no slaves, only women and children were tasked with washing someone's feet. So for the disciples to not only do what might at least seem proper, which is that you wash the superior's feet. 
that itself they did not do because of the social context. But to see Jesus, who is their superior, perform the service to them, went against and destroyed the expectations of society. But then you read on, it says, then what does he do? It ta- he takes off his outer robe and tied a towel around his waist. This was the dress of slaves that they would not have the covering of an outer robe, which is a sign of your status, but that they also tie a towel around their waist. That's the dress of a slave, and it was looked down upon. That if you are a respected man in society, that's not something you are supposed to do. You're not supposed to be dressed like that. You know, Jesus says in Luke chapter 22, who is greater, one who reclines a table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines a table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And when you think about that, he's serving in the form of a servant, in the form of a slave. I like to think that Paul would have obviously heard of this from the disciples and from the apostles and the other apostles and he might have thought of it when he wrote Philippians chapter two, verse six to eight. Text about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now here it's talking not about his dress but you think about it. Even to the extent that he's dressed as a slave, this passage holds true. This love, this grace would ultimately manifest itself on the cross where Jesus died. It was stunning. It was unexpected. It was lavish. And in a sense, it was unnecessary. Why did Jesus have to wash the feet of the disciples? Why did he have to put on the dress of a slave, even if he had to wash their feet? There's a hint of something that is unnecessary. And that is a characteristic of all aspects of grace. That strictly speaking, all grace is unnecessary. Now if you think about it, you're like, well, if Jesus hadn't died, I could not be saved. So it's necessary for us. But you know, we were talking on Friday about the nature of God. We said God is independent in the sense that he needs nothing out of himself, outside of himself, to be satisfied, to exist to have purpose. He's not contingent, he's not dependent on anything outside of himself. So God did not need to extend his grace to us, to save us. In that sense, it is unnecessary. All grace has an element of unnecessariness. You know, if you have seen, uh, there's a movie called Big, I saw it as a kid. In that movie, there's a big piano. It's like a piano that you can play by by, uh, walking on the piano, the keys. You step on the keys. This big piano, for the longest time, uh, I'm not sure if it's there anymore, used to be in a toy store called F.A.O. Schwartz in Manhattan. Okay? So this, you can't buy it. It's just there. And this, this is a sizable instrument. 
it costs them $250,000 to make and, and obviously the maintenance cost. But if you know anything about Manhattan, Fifth Avenue in Manhattan is the most expen expensive real estate in the world. So they analyzed how much rent they were paying based on the square footage of the piano. The, cost, the rent to put that piano in the store, $250,000 a year. So many people came to them and asked them, why? You can't buy it. There's no, there's no data which shows that people are coming to the store to see the piano and then buy your product. But it's there. It's lavish. It's stunning. It's unexpected and unnecessary. It's costly. That is the element, the elements of divine grace. And that's what we see in the character of Jesus Christ who washes the feet of his disciples. Then we look at verse six to eight. What does the sign actually signify? He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Peter's tone here is one of strained disbelief. You know, the emphasis is you and me. So it's like, Lord, do you wash my feet? He's still thinking in terms of the social context and, and, and you know, Peter, the passionate, outspoken, hot-headed fellow in the 12. Far, free, far be from it that he would willingly agree to the social injustice. But then Jesus says, you will not understand this now, but you will only understand about it later. And that is, he's not talking about the foot washing. So Peter is not going to look at his feet and say, oh, they are clean, now I understand why Jesus need to wash my feet. No, he's saying that this foot washing, when you think of the fact, after Jesus has died on the cross, you will understand that Jesus' lavish, stunning, unnecessary, gracious love exemplified in the foot washing points or pointed to a greater act of love that Peter will see later, which is Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus is saying, I'm here to love you and to serve you. I now serve you by washing your feet. But in the days to come, you will see that I love you and will serve you by dying on the cross for you. And then you may begin to understand the depth of my lavish grace and love toward you. Now Peter, obviously he does not understand and he's also, like I said, a little bit hot-headed. He does not want to take Jesus' words at face value. So he says, no, never. And then Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Or if I do not cleanse you, you have no part of me. So Jesus using the cleansing property of the foot washing, which is that, you know, when you wash your feet, there used to be dirt, now it's clean, to point out that his death, which is what the sign points to, his death would cleanse their sins through his death, burial, and resurrection. And unless Jesus' blood has washed away your sins and my sins, I can have no part or no share, no link, no relationship with him. That's what he's trying to say here. If I do not cleanse you, you have no part of me. He's not talking about the foot washing. Be very, very careful. He's saying what this points to, that cleansing 
if you do not take that upon yourself, if you do not appropriate the benefits of that cleansing, then you have no link, you have no share, you have no relationship with me. So the sign signifies the death on the cross, which is the cleansing of Jesus Christ of our sins, which enables us to have a share with him. But then we go on. Peter, obviously, again, not understanding. This leads to the next interaction between the two of them. Verse 9 to 11. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. So Peter, still not understanding, but now very enthusiastic, responds to Jesus, you know, saying that, oh, you shall have no share of me if I don't wash your feet. In that case, give me a bath. Wash me everywhere, right? Hands, head, drench me. And Jesus takes the opportunity, we have to understand, this is in the flow of conversation. Many people have split hairs, trying to figure out what exactly does Jesus mean. In one instance, he already said, if I don't cleanse you, you have no part of me. And then he goes on to say, but I don't need to wash you fully. What does that mean? And you have to see, in the flow of conversation, when Peter asks this question, Jesus takes the opportunity to make another point about his cleansing, his salvation through his death on the cross. And it turns on two words, which is, in the first instance, he talks about washing, and then he talks about bathing. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. So those who have taken a bath and you take a journey only need to wash the parts that are dirty. In this case, the feet that were dusty because everything else is completely clean. And so in the flow of conversation, the previous verses showed that Jesus was using the cleansing property of the water to point to his death on the cross as a cleansing agent for sins. So we looked at that. Here he's using the specific application of that water, of the foot wash, which is to just the feet, to make a separate point, which is that those who are cleansed once by Jesus' death on the cross do not need to take a bath again. You understand what's happening here? In the first instance, Jesus was talking to Peter and he used the cleansing property of the water, which washes away dirt, to point to the cross, the blood that washes away your sins. But then when Peter asks this question, why don't you just give me a bath, he then uses the fact that the foot washing is only to your feet to make another point. So we have to be very careful. They are not the same point. Are, it's another point. Jesus is saying that you are clean. Therefore, you only need to be cleaned where you are dirty, which means that once you are cleansed by Jesus Christ, you do not need to be cleansed again. And you ask yourself, okay, how did the disciples get cleansed? We know that this is, prospect, this is perspective in faith, that when Jesus dies, dies on the cross, these disciples will be cleansed. But then Jesus makes another point in John chapter 15, verse three, where he talks to them, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So the cleansing 
of salvation comes through the word of God revealed in Jesus Christ, which points to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, which cleanses us from unrighteousness once and for all. That is the point Jesus is trying to make. In the flow of conversation with Peter, seeing Peter's enthusiasm, he's saying you have to understand that my death for you accomplishes your cleansing, but you only need it once. And so then you might ask, what then is the ongoing cleansing? And, and honestly, if you analyze, we, we have gotten into this habit of analyzing uh, parables and science so intricately that many people have gone astray and you know this is how cults are formed or even if cults are not formed, at least you start focusing on things which are not in the text and which go against the actual imperative of the text. But if you want to have an example where something like this happens, where there's an initial cleansing and then you wash only the parts that are dirty, you go to another book written by John, which is First John, 1 verse 9, where John is speaking very prominently about the salvation of Jesus Christ. But then he also says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you could say that once you are saved, you don't need to be saved again. But when you are dirty, the cleansing that comes from confession and Jesus' forgiveness is, is, is similar to the point that Jesus is trying to make here. You only need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is your salvation, once. And then the parts that become dirty, you need to cleanse only those things. We call that confession. We call that as part of the process of sanctification, making us more holy. But you also have to understand that a second point that Jesus is trying to make here is that no external rite, no external ceremony, even if in this case it was administered by Jesus himself, can cleanse you. How do we know that? Because it, it says here, because Judas is washed, but he is not clean. So even if Jesus washes your feet, the only way you're going to get clean is if you have a part in Jesus Christ, if you have a share in Jesus Christ, which means you have appropriate the benefits of Jesus' death on the cross through faith, that is salvation. No, nothing else. Not even Jesus himself, if he washes your feet. Not even the Pope, who is the agent of Christ, as they say it. If he washes your feet, nothing else can make you clean. The only real cleansing of our souls, the cleansing that makes us righteous and worthy to have a share in Jesus Christ comes from the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, which is the message of the gospel. So we looked at the, what the sign signifies and we looked at the uniqueness of Jesus cleansing, on the uh, cleansing death on the cross. The last point is the example that he lays before us. Verse 12 to 17, when he had washed their feet, and put on his outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your teacher and Lord have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger 
greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus, having done the foot washing, which is the sign, which is the symbolism of pointing to the cross, he takes his place and then he asks them a specific question. Do you understand what it is that I have done? And of course, they don't understand, so he will explain it. And it leads to the point that he's making that I have given you an example that you should follow. This is part of Jesus' authority over them. He's their rabbi, teacher, and their Lord. So that the example that he has set should be followed by his followers. That doesn't mean, like we said, that they can go and die on the cross and save people from their sins. Because that is unique to Jesus Christ. But the attitude can be taken and repeated. So that attitude of self-giving, self-sacrificing, lavish, unnecessary love, showcased here by foot washing, needed to be followed and emulated by the examples. If I, as your master, have washed your feet, then no task, no responsibility, is too lowly, too menial, too humiliating for you. Because I have done it. Then what right do you have to say something is below your status? That is the point that Jesus is making. You know, later on in John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. The mark of a Christian community has to be the love that we have for one another. That is following on from the stunning, lavish, unnecessary love that Jesus had for us. So the love that we have for each other should astound the world. By this, all people will then know that you are the disciples of Jesus Christ. Later on, in the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, verse 20 to 23, let me read a few verses. I did not ask for these only, that is the 12 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's all of us, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23 that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. The mark of a Christian community is also that we have a unity that astounds the world and points to the love and unity within the triune Godhead and attests to the validity of the gospel. The love, the unity, the grace, the markers of Christian community, all of that flows, it is only possible if every disciple of Jesus Christ has the same attitude that Jesus himself had, which is to have a love that is lavish, stunning, and filled with grace that the world calls unnecessary. That's why Jesus also points out, he says, truly, truly, which marks the seriousness of what he's going to say, he says, blessed are you if you do them. It is not enough to hear, but you have to do it now that you have heard. And he points to himself as the example and the pattern. You see, in ancient Greece and Rome, all the examples and patterns were of courage, 
and, and of accomplishment. Here comes Jesus, who gives an example and a pattern to show that humility, self-sacrifice, and love were virtues that were not just to be looked down upon, but rather they were noble, that they were to be celebrated, and that they would be exemplified in the lives of his disciples. That's why Christians love each other, or we are called to love each other, beyond just the constraints of family and blood relationship. For those things are necessary. But to love beyond that, to love someone who the world says is not on your level, or who has offended you, who has wronged you, who gives you no reasons to love them back, to even sacrifice for them and to the extent of laying down your life for that person, that is stunning to the world. You know, you talk about Christian unity, you talk about Christian hospitality, which goes beyond the needs of, beyond the needs of entertainment and network formation, which is very important in our society today. And, and social niceties, to actively sacrifice of our time and of our resources to not just benefit us and our social standing and our children, but for the exclusive benefit of someone else who is not related to us other than through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is radical. That's what Jesus is trying to say. Christian mission, which goes out into places that the world calls backward and dangerous and hostile in order to communicate the love of Christ for them, that is unnecessary, according to the world. See, these were not concepts that were in vogue in that time. But if we see that in any form, any extent today, anywhere in the world, but especially in the church, it is because of the pattern and example of Jesus Christ who overcame and overturned the expectations of the world with regards to what it means to be good and loving and sacrificial. It took God to put on flesh for us to understand the possibilities of love and service even within the constraints of humanity. Even within the constraints of our human flesh. God set the example that even though you are human, let me show you what you can do and how that will point out to the world that you are my followers. For those of us who follow sports, you know that one of the big things that happened in the last century was someone finally ran a mile, which is 1.6 kilometers, in under four minutes. Before that happened, this was considered the pinnacle of human athletic achievement to the extent that one of the runners of that time, a man named John Landy, he said it's a brick wall to run a whole mile in less than four minutes is impossible. Brick wall, no one can do it. Then this guy came along called Roger Bannister. He, he broke it, he ran it in three minutes 59. He set the example, and then he gave a pattern. How do you run a mile less than four minutes? He showed them how it could be done. Do you know how many people have run since this happened maybe 30, 40 years ago? How many people have run a mile in less than four minutes? 
just among men, 1,400 people, including 10 high school students, including John Landy, who two years later, seeing that Roger Bannister broke the record, then became the world record holder. He ran it in three minutes and 58 seconds. The guy who said, this is a brick wall, once he, sh he, sh he saw the example that someone did it, and then he followed the pattern of the same person, he went ahead and broke that record. Jesus, you know, it says in Hebrews, he's our forerunner. He has gone into places where we never could have gone. But he's also our pattern, our example. He gives us the way, the means, the method by which we are able to do things that previously were called impossible. Jesus loved us to the end, lavishly, stunningly. He cleansed us once and for all with his death on the cross which is the stunning manifestation of his love for us. Nothing else can cleanse us from our unrighteousness or bring us into a relationship with him. And now those of us who belong to him, who have been cleansed by him, we are commanded to love one another, to serve one another in humility and self-sacrifice, to love our enemies, to take the gospel to them. Following the pattern and example of our God, who loved us and died for us. May his name alone be glorified. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word, for your provision of it to us, that we are able to read it, understand it, for your Holy Spirit that illuminates these truths to us, for the simplicity of its message that we often complicate ourselves, Lord, showing us, Lord, that of your great love and sacrifice, which manifested itself on your death on the cross, which has the power to save us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and only you can do that. But in that, you have given us an attitude and an example to follow, which enables us, O oh Lord, to love each other, to love the world in, in ways that might seem ridiculous and unnecessary, but you have commanded us to do so, so may we be able to do so, following in your footsteps, to be united as you have called us to do so, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth as you've called us to do so, not in our own strength, but following your pattern and in the strength of your Holy Spirit so that we can be marked out as disciples of Jesus Christ by the world and point them to the gospel that will indeed lead to their salvation and cleansing. May we have the courage and the opportunity and the ability, O oh Lord, through your Spirit to do these things. Bless us and guard us as we depart to our homes and may your name alone be glorified. We ask the name of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. <laughs>